Hello, and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheet's pharma regulatory podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by senior editors Sue Sutter and Brenda Sandberg and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is September 8th, 2023. First up in our look at the week's most interesting pharma and FDA stories is the end of the FTC's case to block Amgen's acquisition of Horizon Therapeutics. Brenda, what did the FTC decide? Well, uh, the FTC reached an agreement with a consent order that allows Amgen's acquisition to go through. It, it formalizes Amgen's commitment not to bundle its products like its blockbuster and brawl with Horizon's two top-selling orphan drugs, Tapeza for thyroid eye disease and Cristexa for chronic refractory gout. FTC took the extraordinary step of filing a complaint in district court seeking a preliminary injunction to block the acquisition and hadn't done this in in 14 years. The agency used the complaint as a a way to go after pharma practices it deems to be anti-competitive. In this case, uh, bundling products to pressure pharmacy benefit managers and payers into favoring Horizon's drugs over future competitors. Um, this was the first case in which the agency carried out what it had said was its plan to pursue novel theories of competitive harm in, in merger reviews. And it took the first step in, in announcing this um, in March 2021 when it formed a working group with the, com- the competition enforcement agencies in Canada and Europe, uh, which included the DOJ and state attorneys general. And the work group was looking at whether current theories of harm could be expanded to include other factors, um, such as past behavior. And the FTC noted in its complaint, in which six uh, attorney generals, state attorney generals joined, that Amgen had been bundling its products, products to get an advantage over competitors. And it cited Regeneron's suit against Amgen in which Regeneron claimed Amgen was bundling sales of its PC-SK9 inhibitor Ripatha with Enbrel and uh, uh, Otezel and conditioning rebates on those two drugs on the exclusion of Regeneron's prelulent on formularies of PBMs and, and, and third-party payers. And Amgen had said it would not bundle its products with Horizons, and then it would agree to this in a consent order. But the FTC went ahead and filed the complaint anyway. And in its court filings, it cited a report by its expert, Aaron Kesselheim from Harvard Medical School, that Amgen could circumvent its commitment. But the FTC seemed to be to be using this as a test case and an opportunity to rein in bundling practices. It, it 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 has launched a probe into PBM practices and targeted bundling. This the complaint was a huge concern for industry, um, pharma, and biofiled amicus briefs. And bio said it was concerned that quote about an unnecessary shift in merger enforcement and FTC's unwillingness to negotiate reasonable remedies, saying this would discourage beneficial transactions and chill investment. Um, Lena Khan said in a statement in announcing the agreement that the lawsuit reflects an advance in the commission's pharmaceutical merger program. So it, it's it's clear that future mergers will get the same kind of scrutiny and 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 face hurdles like this in and getting FDA FTC's acceptance and maybe um, similar imposition of requirements on practices the FTC doesn't doesn't like. How do you if if this is your this is their new kind of thinking about about some of these mergers? How how do you 
prepare for you know our, our you know how do you prepare for a merger review because theoretically they could say anything could be bundled with anything else right yeah well i, I think companies just know going forward that you know um they, they might have to agree like oh we're not going to bundle or if if there's other this was one practice that they've gone after but they've also criticized past behavior with regard to um pay for delay and um, patent thickening. So if if companies have been engaging in that behavior, then the FTC might use this as a as a, a, a avenue to say don't do this anymore and and get it in an actual commitment that they're not going to do it. Um, so I think that in the merger, um, the the FTC issued and DOJ issued new um, guidelines um, a month or so ago saying that of all the information that they'd be requesting, they're going to be requesting a lot more information from companies when they do a merger review. And so companies just know now that they just have to have a lot more documentation and face a lot more scrutiny about practices. Brenda, it's very interesting that uh, um, uh, FTC uh, cited a uh, competitor as sort of part of the uh, uh, reasons that's sort of kind of what Amgen was doing is uh, is wrong. We've seen that in a... Uh, Another uh, avenue of uh, um, uh, uh, enforcement against pharmaceutical companies uh, in advertising, obviously a different uh, agency, FDA, and uh, different legal principles at work there. But uh, I just thought it was interesting that sort of kind of as uh, there's sort of kind of growing skepticism about uh, um, you know perhaps uh, government action uh, um, in the uh, you know uh, from the judiciary that. Uh, you know, government actors are still able to uh, um, do some enforcement, but uh, perhaps, uh, you know, at the impetus of uh, um, of competitors, uh, you know, there was a recent speculation that the two uh, um, uh, letters that uh, FDA sent on uh, advertising enforcement uh, uh, this past uh, month were uh, in some ways perhaps prompted by competitors complaining. And, uh, you know, there's been... Uh, um, now this uh, FTC move, which was sort of backed up by a competitor, and uh, that is not the only reason these things are going on, but it's an interesting trend that's sort of kind of that uh, that uh, companies can sort of kind of uh, perhaps leverage uh, uh, longstanding or ongoing uh, um, uh, uh, attitudes by uh, enforcement agencies to uh, to get what they want against uh, um, others in the field. So uh, maybe something that uh, folks should consider going forward. That, that that potentially is a questionable strategy, though, because as soon as you try to do something, then everybody else that you went up against potentially could come back and do the same thing to you. So, absolutely, <laughs> I mean, you have to sort of find the uh, the the agency that you're appealing to has to agree with your interpretation of uh, appropriate behavior, but uh, um, and they have to be sort of kind of willing to uh, willing to do it. But it's a uh, it's just a, another sort of another wrinkle in this whole thing. Brenda, is there a way, like, I don't know if there's a way to kind of encourage or, I mean, force is probably not the right word to, you know, kind of get a, get FTC to to start to go, to go back to the way they had been thinking about this, which was kind of like, you know, you wrote in your story, they mainly got concerned about when products overlapped because then, you know, obviously that creates less competition in the marketplace. I mean, is there a way to get them to kind of go back to that or... Do we have to wait for another FTC commissioner? Well, I think that that would be the case because this started when um, the, and when it was uh, Republican-led and the Democrat 
Democrat commissioners were in the minority and the, the minority was opposing um, certain mergers. Um, and I don't have that at my fingertips, but they're very well known cases back then where they uh, they voted against uh, a merger and they advocated Slaughter and Chopra, uh, Chopra who's, who's since left, they, they advocated that the FTC consider not just horizontal overlap, but other things that would affect competition, you know, Im impact on innovation, impact on drug prices. So I don't, I, that, that this is the philosophy of the, of the commissioners that make up the commission now. I mean, the Democratic commissioners. And so unless there's an uh, over uh, a change, I, I don't think they're going to, they're going to change their, their position on this. It's, it's very much, um, it's 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 central to the their 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 beliefs, and not only them, but when I mentioned that they had they formed this um this workshop working group with um all these other enforcement agencies, and that that culminated in a workshop, and their experts they they had like a two day hearing on this, and experts weighed in, and one of the things that they said was that FDA should assess um, PBM contracts when with merging uh, firms when when they do their merger review. That was one thing. And also they advocated that they look at the past bad conduct of companies. So this there, there's been like a crescendo of this building up since before the commission became um, democratic led. That's interesting. We'll have to see how see how the the market reacts to this. Uh, thanks a lot, Brenda. I appreciate it. Next up is the FDA, NIH, and National Cancer Institute potentially working together with industry to develop cancer drugs. Sue, what is in this proposal? So, yeah, the, the three entities, FDA, FNIH, and NCI, um, are talking about setting up a public-private partnership focused on drug development for ultra-rare tumors. So this would be tumors involving 300, about 300 people or less per year in the U.S. and that are rare enough to be economically infeasible and not attractive for independent commercial drug development. And um, <clears throat> so they're kind of vetting this idea right now. This is the first stage of, of trying to figure out whether to move forward with this proposal. They had a public meeting uh, a couple of weeks ago on this to kind of discuss the idea. And the idea would be that they would, if they decide to move forward, they would uh, do one or two, choose one or two tumors per year for pilot projects. And the idea is um, this would encompass end-to-end -end development, and it would be conducted through an open science, uh, multi-stakeholder multi approach. And it would focus on... Um, as I said, tumors with low incidences, high mortality and morbidity with no effective therapies, tumors that have well-defined molecular drivers, but which do not have any target of therapies, well-characterized experimental model systems, and committed advocates and committed clinicians who are dedicated uh, in this area. And um, so the aim is to really kind of fill fill the gap where industry is not right now because it's just not economically feasible for them to try to develop or and or sell for these ultra rare tumors. 
And so at this meeting, FDA talked about what role it would play in this process, and it noted that the FDA folks who would be involved in this public-private partnership would be separate and apart from any of the FDA folks who would review drugs that come in for approval, drugs that were, were developed under this partnership and come in for approval. So there's a firewall of sorts. They are seeking private investment. They would be seeking private investment for this initiative if it were to go forward. Um, so there was some discussion at the meeting about, well, how would you attract industry for this? And um, one point that was made was if you can have some very close and early interactions with the regulators, that would be very attractive to pharma because they could kind of use that experience and those interactions, probably not just for these ultra rare tumor uh, drugs, but sort of more broadly in their development programs. And then there was also a desire for, um, you know, pick some targets that are, that you get some early wins on, some of the easier of the difficult targets to, to go after. And also for very streamlined decision-making, you know, have just a few people involved who are the ones who are deciding what tumors to go after. Because the more people you get in terms of these decisions, you know, being in charge of this decision-making, the more complicated it gets. And then another recommendation was, you know, you really need to address any IP concerns upfront. Don't get too far down the road without having dealt with those at the outset. And then also, there was a request by some people from industry that you need to think about what happens after approval, because even if a drug gets approved under this initiative, it may still not be economically feasible for a company to market it. So there has to be some consideration of, you know, reimbursement. Should there be some sort of nonprofit set up to, to take over the marketing of this drug? So there's a lot of issues that are being vetted in terms of this proposal. Um, as I say, this is only one stage one of stage of a stage three stage process for deciding whether or not to move this this project forward. Um, the next stage, I think, involves um, putting together targets and then um, deciding whether or not to pursue pilot projects. So the FDA has sniffed around this idea a lot before, and they, 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 I mean, they, they had kind of this, this program, it was called, I want to say, especially, I mean, it was, it was an oncology program. I think it was like project renewal. I think it was pretty much what it, pretty sure it was what it was called, where they would, they were trying to entice sponsors to go back and, and update labels of long generic cancer drugs that had been you that are used for different things that were in the label and it's just like common knowledge and just hadn't been the work hadn't been done and they i i don't really i didn't really get the impression that it caught on very much because they just it it's they they couldn't find people to go and do the work and actually file the submission even though the evidence was all there and all they had to do was Put the pieces of paper together essentially um i mean i guess i'm wondering if if something like that doesn't really catch fire and lead to a lot of progress you know how you know does something like this catch on easily if at all well project renewal there was at least one approval under project renewal because i covered it i can't remember what their approval was for um 
But that was, yeah, that was more so bringing labeling up to date with how the drugs are actually used. This would be kind of filling a void where there's nothing and um, to try to spark some development for these very, very rare tumors. I mean, yeah, um, this is even tougher how to than do that. that. Sort of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. How to do that efficiently and in a way that is economically viable. And there were some cons- comparisons at the meeting to the Bespoke Gene Therapy Consortium, which is something that the Center for Biologics has been very involved in, in terms of trying to develop um, platforms for uh, gene therapies that are targeted, you know, at N of one conditions. So, which are, of course, not economically feasible for a pharma company to develop. Um, so it's it's kind of the same idea here. How interested industry would be, you know, I think we'll have to see about that. Do uh, uh, the recollection correct? According to the uh, FDA website, there is uh, one project renewal approval uh, so far to date. Uh, uh, Zolota in uh, December uh, 14th, uh, 2022. So, uh, as Derek was saying, it seems like a uh, you know very you know ambitious and worthwhile effort on uh, FDA's part that so far we're kind of uh, not produced much. So uh, and uh, um, it's a uh, very interesting uh, effort, effort that has FDA has underway here. I'm particularly intrigued, intrigued by the firewall. It's just a uh, different way of thinking about for kind of you know how the agency should structure itself as. Uh, uh, development focused uh, um, public health agency or a uh, you know sort of safety uh, um, focused uh, public health uh, agency and obviously we've seen that tension uh, um, you know play out uh, in various ways with various products uh, um, you know uh, um, orphan drugs or in uh, um, even the uh, COVID vaccines with sort of kind of who would be on uh, project warp speed and the uh, and the like but it's a uh, um, it's an interesting uh, place to th- that the agency finds itself as it's sort of kind of obviously sort of kind of under uh, continued resource strain as uh, um, all uh, federal agencies are and sort kind of moving towards uh, doing uh, um, doing this uh, um, you know as opposed to doing some more uh, um, oversight focused stuff and it's uh, um, a uh, um, interesting vision that the uh, the FDA has for itself here. Yeah I thought the firewall was interesting too you know one would think that whoever is advising this public-private partnership, you know, their advice is not going to differ, differ much from what the review teams are going to, the view that the review teams are going <laughs> to hold on a particular product, right? But uh, you could see where there would be some kind of potential for conflict there if perhaps there were individual opinions that differed. This This sort of goes back a ways, but I mean, there's still, I'm guessing there's still stakeholders out there that don't like the federal government getting in the drug development business, even if it's for indications that aren't commercially viable, you know, and that industry doesn't want to touch. I mean, there were, there were, there were lots of questions when NCATS was created at NIH because, you know, they were like, wait a minute, the the NIH can't be developing drugs because that's what the pharma industry is for. And you know, they they were there were real concerns about where NIH is where NIH's involvement would stop and like what phase of development it would stop. And 
mm-hmm. you know, they they had to they had to be really careful about that in order just to get that, you know, to get that the funding approved for that. So, you know, something like this, like, yeah, if it's like, you know, if, if it's kind of, you know, if, if it doesn't really, you know, involve a whole lot of work or a whole lot of, you know, a whole lot of um, a whole lot of drugs or whatever, it might not, you know, could fly into the radar. But if they start if it if they start really doing a whole lot of projects with this, you know, they might face those sorts of questions again. Yeah, but if you look at it from the sense of, well, nobody else is doing this anywhere, right? Um, you know, there was a comment made that oftentimes this work falls to the um, patient advocacy organizations and the academics, the practicing clinicians to do this work because industry won't touch it because it's it's not worth their while to touch it. So if nobody else is doing this and the government can come in and kind of help spur it and help organize it, I don't see a whole lot of reason for objections to that. But they would still yeah. need industry involved, right? Yeah, I mean, I would assume at some point, if they once they you know get on the cusp of approval, someone from industry would be more than happy to take it from them and you know and make money. <laughs> You know, once well, assuming they can, of course. But uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think uh, um, the 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 idea that sort of kind of it's a uh, you know a slippery slope, sort of a uh, a precedent that sort of kind of that uh, um, you know a federal agency kind of sets a uh, um, a research agenda sort of kind of all the way through development and uh, commercialization is uh, you know something that sort of kind of uh, you know industry uh, uh, may not uh, like in terms of sort of kind of having freedom to kind of sort of kind of um, craft their own budgets and uh, um, strategy, but obviously it's a very small uh, um, area at the moment. Yeah, this will be another interesting thing to watch. Um, you know, so yeah, I'm I'm curious to see what happens here. So thanks, Sue. Mm-hmm, sure. Finally, we're going to look at the FDA's generic drugs program. New data shows that for the fourth straight month, the FDA granted more full approvals to generic drug applications than applications submitted. That's a record for the generic drug user fee era and raised some questions about the industry. Of course, few people are going to complain about the FDA cranking up its approval totals. The agency approved 69 ANDAs in July, the most recent data available. But some may wonder what's going on when only 36 ANDAs were submitted. To be fair, ANDA submissions tend to ebb and flow throughout the fiscal year. There's typically three months with unusually high numbers, December, March, and September. So another bolus may be coming. But the FDA is in a position to have an average full approval total for the year that outnumbers submissions. That would be only the second time that that's happened. And the other time, the FDA had to set a record for ANDA approvals to beat the submission total. Matt, you're one of our experts on generics. Uh, there were a number of reasons that were thrown out here about why this is happening. Happening. I'm, I'm curious what you think of all this. Well, it's uh, um, you know, hard to say uh, given that we're kind of that we're, that we're kind of uh, in the middle of a potential trend, not sort of kind of looking back at a uh, at an inflection point. But uh, um, I do think the uh, the idea that perhaps uh, you know generic firms are uh, restructuring and sort of kind of thinking about sort of kind of uh, um, right sizing their portfolios and uh, um, just you know may not be doing as much development and. Uh, um, you know, uh, um, application work as they used to. Uh, the industry is under uh, intense pressure, as we've talked about on the uh, the pod and uh, written about a bunch of the pink sheet. Uh, you know, sort kind of uh, you know margins are being squeezed uh, just because there are uh, you know so few uh, sales outlets in the uh, um, in the U.S. and constant demands for uh, um, 
you know, uh, uh, lower prices and uh, uh, and more competitors. And, uh, you know, uh, um, it uh, um, it's the kind of situation that doesn't lend itself to a lot of uh, free money to uh, um, to take uh, shots on goal with more applications. And uh, firms may be figuring out that, uh, you know, the um, the more products we get approved does not mean the more products that we sell. So this uh, this could be the start of a, uh, um, you know, a long term uh, pressure reduction for the FDA reviewers if uh, um, if this holds true. Yeah, I th- I thought sort of the the idea that or like the 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 speculation that there might be a shift to different types of products was interesting too. Um, obviously now more there's more complex generics that are kind of in pipeline, more biosimilars in the pipeline, and those from an R and D perspective just take a lot more effort, to take a lot more time and a lot more money, uh, you know, to get to get done. So. If you're, you know, all those things take up resources that would go to, you know, theoretically other small molecule andes. So, I get I, if that's the case, you have to wonder if there's maybe a sort of a long-term shift happening where, you know, you don't see a high volume of andes, but we see a, you know, we see more andes that are kind of tailor-made to, you know, to meet more of the needs, which is a move to more complex products more bias more biologics and 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 so forth i don't know it's an interesting interesting thought yeah a universe in which uh there were fewer uh um andas approved but uh uh they all launched and uh you know uh, ensured a uh, stable supply of uh, um every drug would be a uh a good one, even if uh, you know, it meant that FDA reviews total review totals were kind of uh, didn't look as strong in uh, um, in retrospect. So, uh, yeah, and I bet you'd see an increase in you know, first cycle approvals and 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 so forth. But you know, numbers that industry definitely wants to see uh, move up because there's just more. There's more time to you know pay more attention to you know to what's going in and and in return what's going out. So yeah. Derek, can I just add one addendum to my my comments? Um, sure. I, I I wanted just to put on the record that the the deals that uh, Rebecca Kelly Slaughter and Rohit Chopra objected to were um, Bristol Myers Squibb's acquisition of Celgene and AbbVie's acquisition of Allergan, and Mylan Pharmaceuticals' acquisition of Pfizer's Upjohn unit. Just just to be just for the record. <laughs> That's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sue Sutter, Brenda Sandberg, and Matt Hobbs. Take care, and we'll see you next time. 